Ruth chapter uh, 2 this morning, and we're going to cover the whole chapter. And you might say, well, Paul's up earlier this morning than normal, so that means he's going to take twice as long. No. Um, we've just sort of front-ended the, the sermon, and we're going to do a little bit more response through the songs that we do at the end, too. <sighs> Ruth chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean among and gather among the sheaves of the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name with whom I worked today was Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. 
Father, thank you for your word and for the way that you um, reveal yourself to us in so many different literary forms. I thank you for this story in which in the telling of it, we find so much about you, so much about ourselves, so much of your way in the world. Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning, those hearts that are having a hard time finding you in our lives, those hearts that are still swimming in a sea of hopelessness, those hearts that are maybe encouraged and just want to be bolstered by the truth of your word. Spirit of God, would you take the word and apply it individually to our hearts and our minds and our wills. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we have a hard time finding God in the circumstances of our lives. And I think sometimes it's because we have lost sight of actually who God is. Do we know who we're looking for when we're looking for God in the circumstances of our lives? Who is this God that we have been worshiping already this morning? Who is this God that we are supposed to trust with our lives? If you don't know God, how will you find God in the circumstances of your lives? Here are some texts that I just pulled out at random this week that, um, that help begin to shape the God that we might look for when we're looking for him in our lives. Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Acts 17.24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Proverbs 16, the, Lord, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isaiah wrote of God, um, uh, God speaking through Isaiah says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Isaiah 40 verses 9 to 31 are a beautiful description of God to Israel where the prophet begins there by saying with this one phrase, Behold your God. And then he begins to describe a God who has measured the universe and the world out in his hands. A God to whom there is nobody that we might liken him to. A God who goes before us and behind us and strengthens us. And then you maybe go to Job chapter 38 and 39. And in there we understand as Job views God and as God reveals himself to Job. God begins by telling Job how he is in charge of the universe. And how he controls the stars and the sun and the moon. And the sort of the big picture of life. And then he begins to narrow it down to how God is also in control of creation and of the wildlife and of, of the way they move and of where they give birth and of when they eat and of when they die. And these are just a few places that we can turn to that begin to inform us about God. So we knew, know how to find this God 
we're looking for. I remember a while ago, and I think we might have a picture up on the slide, and I think they're still around, finding Waldo. That's Waldo up there. And it was a popular sort of thing that families would do. And you had to find this guy in, in something like this. There's, there's a, a, a massive sort of clutter and activity of life, and Waldo is somewhere hidden in that mass. It's a difficult task. And it's an even more difficult task if you don't know what Waldo looks like. But he is there. You just have to look for him. You just have to find where he is in that picture. And I sometimes think the circumstances of our life are like that. And they might shout to us, as that picture did, well, Waldo's nowhere to be found. And meaning no disrespect, sometimes we mean, well, God is nowhere to be found. He's abandoned me. He's left me. He's hidden from me. But he is there. And just as this chapter has demonstrated, and I will show, I think that sometimes God is easy to find. Sometimes he's more difficult to find. But if we don't know what God is like and who he is, we will never find him. And so, do you see God in your life today? I want us to look at this one day in the life of Ruth and Naomi and look at some of the ways in which God shows up. And I say some because I've left out many that I had written down. But these are just a few that stood out in my mind as I was reading this chapter of finding God in the circumstances of our life. We left off last week with the barley harvest that had just begun and Naomi and Ruth have just arrived back in Bethlehem. And I think that this chapter, chapter 2, probably describes the very next day. They would have come back with no food. They would have come back with nothing to sustain them. And so they needed to get right at it and try and find some way of at least eating and surviving for that day. And so the question that I ask is, can we see God in their day? And the first thing that I saw as I began reading this chapter is the God whose hand reaches beyond our hopelessness. In the very first verse, what we have is the, the, the narrator is letting the cat out of the bag. And even as I wrote that phrase, I thought, why would anyone let a cat out of a bag? Um, that's my own personal perspective, but um, many of you love cats. Uh, don't send me an email, please. <laughs> but um, maybe another way, he, he let the secret out. Or he, he seems to ruin the story by this particular sentence. But I think it's intentional. He, he writes this first sentence to sort of make us sit up. It kind of sets attention for us. All of a sudden, he describes this one who is a relative of Naomi. And didn't we think a little while back, Naomi has a relative? I thought her situation was hopeless. Didn't she say that she had come back empty? I think this passage tells us something about God. What do you say? It doesn't say anything about God in this verse. I think it says a great deal about God. It tells me that God is never at a loss. He's never at a dead end having to turn around. He's never has to abandon plan A for plan B. Things are not as bleak as Naomi had thought. Back in chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, Naomi had pleaded with, his, with their two daughter-in-laws to leave her because she says, I have no hope. There is nothing left. There is nobody that can save us. There is nobody that can redeem us. There is no men that you can marry. There is no hope for you. And I wonder, well, well did Naomi know about Boaz? Before she had left many years ago with her family to go to Moab to find food, did she know that Boaz was part of her family? Had she forgotten him? Maybe she had assumed that he would not care, as we often make such terrible assumptions in our hopelessness. 
We don't know why, what Naomi knew about Boaz as she returned to Bethlehem. But we do know, as the text says, by the end of the day, she had found out whether she had talked to other women in the town or whether her memory had been refreshed because she remembered that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. So verse 1 is a statement of hope. It's a statement about a God who is there. Naomi thought herself empty, without hope, without provision, without promise of help. And yet God had a man. God had a man of her very clan, a relative of hers, a worthy man nonetheless, from the clan of Elimelech, Boaz. And before this family had even left from Bethlehem to go to Moab, Boaz was. While Naomi was even descending further and further into her hopelessness, God had Boaz. God was preparing Boaz. A remarkable man. A worthy man. A man of noble character. A man of stature. A man who lived a God-centered life. Even in some very, very dark times. Remember, these were the days when the judges ruled and everyone was doing what was, in their right, was, it, what was right in their own eyes. And yet Boaz was a man who was learning to obey God even in the little things. And we'll talk more about gleaner, but he was opening his fields to gleaners. He was learning how to treat a woman. He was learning how to treat them with respect. He was learning that he should protect them. He was learning that he he should provide for them. In the, days when, in the days when judges ruled, in the time of Naomi's deepest despair, God was shaping the heart of one who did what was right in his eyes. How do you spell hope? B-O-A-Z. Boaz. Not only this, God is the God of the marginalized. The next verse, or in that same verse, um, Ruth or second verse, Ruth says to Naomi, can I go to the field and glean among the ears of grain? Again, you ask, well, where is God? He's not mentioned in that verse. He's not even alluded to. But loved ones, he is there. Many years earlier, God had made a provision, a command, that if obeyed, would ensure that the poor and the alien and the widow would be provided for that the marginalized of society would not starve. They would share in the bounty of Israel's harvest. When you are harvesting your crops, Jesus or God said to the people of Israel, and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigners, Ruth. Leave it for the orphans and the widows, Ruth. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Do you think maybe God had Ruth and Naomi in mind? When he first made that command to the people of Israel? And the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines. And do not pick the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner who lives among you. I am the Lord your God. Just as last week that word shuv was an important way to understand chapter 1 verses 6 to 22. So this week this word glean which is used 12 times in this particular chapter gives us a clue to something that really was important and that matters to God. Long before Ruth ever knew she had such a need, God had prepared a way for her to survive when things were bleak. Do you see that? Do you see how God, many years ago, was providing provision for you today? Do you have faith that even though you might not be able to see the provision of God right now, that God is already at work in your past, 
preparing for your provision for the future. God is so much greater than your hopelessness. Look for him. Look for the ways in which God is providing for you. Do you see God in your life? And specifically as it relates to this text, loved ones, how generous are we? What do we leave for the marginalized? What is God wanting us to do to prepare for those who around us don't have food, don't have clothing, don't have the things that they need for daily sustenance? How is God guiding us to provide for the gleaners of our day. Are we not to have the same heart as our Heavenly Father? Are we not to become like our Heavenly Father? Ruth, though, thought, and she worried, perhaps I will find favor. What would she's worried about? Well, because not, were, not all were obedient to God's command. Not all were so willing to share of their land. Not all were willing to be gracious and merciful. Not all would want to leave some behind because they wanted it for themselves. But even before Ruth and Naomi had a need, hundreds of years earlier, God had prepared for their provision by this command about leaving stuff in your fields for those who didn't have anything. It's a God who grants the desires of our hearts and more as well. At the end of that little phrase, as Ruth is asking permission to go into the field, at the end, in the middle of chapter, uh, uh, verse 2, she says, in whose sight I might find favor. Again, where is God? Do you see him in that phrase? God is attentive to our needs, beloved. He knows our thoughts. Ruth realized that gleaning was not a given. She understood that, that some were stingy, that others were prejudiced that even others still were mean, that some would take advantage of the marginalized and make fun of them or make it difficult for them to glean, unless she, a widow and a foreigner, would find favor with a foreigner or a landowner, this would be a really long day. So whether by prayer or unspoken desire, she, she thought and she knew she needed to find favor. And God heard her. As the day unfolds, she experiences more than she could ever have imagined. After Boaz grants her safety and security, she falls down before him and she says to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me, a stranger. And then a little later she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. And then Naomi confirms it at the end of the day. Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Or uh, we could say, blessed is the man who favored you. You see, God had heard the desire of her heart. God had heard that silent prayer that she uttered. Because remember, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Beloved, God is the God who exalts and God is the God who humbles. God is the God who grants us favor before our enemies and before our friends. God is the one that lifts us up. Favor is a gift of God. When you make a presentation at work, when you apply for a job, when you're trying to gain approval in other people's sights, it's God that grants you favor in the eyes of those individuals. Genesis 39, 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the jailkeeper. Or of the people of Israel, God said, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when they go, they will not go out empty. How did God give them favor? Remember when they left? The Egyptians just heaped 
gold and silver and clothes and food on them as they were going out because God had granted them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. What about Daniel? A captive man taken into a foreign land, forced to, to, to consider eating a pagan diet. And we read that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs so that he could make his own menu. Beloved, God was even there in Ruth's request, her hope, her thought, that she might find favor. And then we read in verse, uh, in verse 3, a little bit following, she set out and went and gleaned in the field of, after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was a, of the clan of Elimelech. She happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Some translations put, as luck would have it, or by coincidence, or she found herself working in, or as her chance chanced upon her, she would found herself in the portion of the field of Boaz. It's the same phrase that's used in 1 Samuel 6, 9, after the Philistines had taken the ark and it had caused so much grief and there was tumors growing all up the, uh, the Philistines and they, wanted, they thought, well, maybe it's the ark. And so they said, well, we will put the ark on a cart and it will be driven by oxen that have never been yoked, who have just calved, and if the, if the oxen cart goes straight, we will know it's God, but if not, and they turn around, we know that this has happened to us by coincidence. And as you know, those oxen in that cart went straight back to Israel. So where is God in Ruth 2.3? Again, we might say, well, I don't see him. He's not mentioned anywhere, but this is one of the key statements in the book of Ruth. See, the narrator is trying to get our attention. He's wanting us to think. In reality, he's screaming, do you see the hand of God at work here? It's the same hand that sent the famine and later provided food. It's the same hand that brought Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem at the beginning of harvest. And now it's the same hand that has guided Ruth to the portion of the field belonging specifically to Boaz. Ruth happened to come to that field or Boaz's field because God is gracious and sovereign even when he is silent. The Lord detects our steps or directs our steps, Proverbs says. So why try to understand everything along the way? See, there is no such thing as luck, beloved. There is no such thing as chance. Chance does not exist. Chance cannot exist if this is God's world and if God is sovereign. I pulled a book off my shelf that I had read some years ago, and it's not an easy book to read, but it's a book by R.C. Sproul called Not a Chance. And here on the first page of the first chapter, he introduces the book this way. As long as chance rules, Arthur Colster has written, God is an anachronism. Colster's dictum is a sound conclusion to a point. It is true that if chance rules, God cannot. We can go further than Colster, though. It is not necessary for chance to rule in order to supplant God. Indeed, chance requires little authority at all if it is to depose God. All it needs to do the job is to exist. The mere existence of chance is enough to rip God from his cosmic throne. Chance does not need to rule. It does not need to be sovereign. If it exists as a mere impotent, humble servant, it leaves God not only out of date but out of a job. If chance exists in its frailest possible form, God is finished. 
If chance exists in any size, shape, or form, God cannot exist. The two are mutually exclusive. If chance existed, it would destroy God's sovereignty. If God is not sovereign, he is not God. If he is not God, he simply is not. If chance is, God is not. If God is, chance is not. The two cannot coexist by reason of the impossibility of the contrary. Would you like to read a whole book like that? (laughs) But you understand what he's saying? You cannot believe in chance and a sovereign God at the same time. So what is happening here is the, is the narrator is describing the, the, a view of life from a human perspective. From Ruth, it just appeared that she, it, to her that she happened into the field of Boaz. But from God's perspective, it was his sovereign desire and leading and guiding that brought Ruth into the field of Boaz. And even more, in verse 4, we have this word, and some translations kind of betray the word a little bit, but it's simply this, behold Boaz. It's like at the very same time that, that Ruth was present in that field in, the, in front of the foreman, Boaz happened to come to the field to survey what was going on. God had brought this meeting together of Ruth and Boaz in his field. We use language, again, to describe such reality. But loved ones, it is God who ordains our steps. It is God who directs our paths. Nothing just happens. Nothing happens by chance. God ordains everything that happens in our lives. So God is in the happenings of your life and of your day. If you want to read more about this, read the book of Esther this afternoon and see how God, who is not even mentioned in the book, guides the very events that unfold in that kingdom. Another place that we see God in this chapter is it's a God who fills our lives. Sometimes God is seen in us. Sometimes God is seen through us. In verse 4, it says that when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he greeted his harvesters and he said, the Lord be with you. I don't think I've ever come into the office and said that. But then they say to him, the Lord bless you. And I don't think they've ever said that to me either. Um, It's not the way that we talk, but the attitude is an attitude that we should have. You have heard it said that a a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I think here that a few words are worth a thousand pictures because verse 4 sort of explodes before us about how God fills our lives day to day. For verse 4 describes the way of a master with his employees. Verse 4 describes the way of workers with their employees. Verse 4 describes how God fills every part of our day, even our working days. Verse 4 describes how God should shape the environments of our life. Verse 4 gives us insight into what Ephesians 6, 5-9 and Colossians 3, 22-4 mean when they talk about slaves looking after their, 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 their Or masters looking after their slaves and slaves looking after their masters. He begins as he comes into the field, the Lord be with you. What he's saying is, may the Lord bless you workers. May the Lord give you protection. May the Lord give you a good day. May the Lord protect you as you work today. And their response to him is the acknowledgement that may God bless you as you lead us and as you guide us and as you plant fields and as you arrange work for us. May God bless you. It's their way of saying that God was filling every part of their day. One wrote, if you want to know a man's relation to God, it helps to find out how far God has saturated him down to the details of his everyday life. 
Evidently, Boaz was such a God-saturated man that his farming business and his relationship to his employees was shot through with God. I love that phrase. Is your life, is my life shot through with God? Or is it just shot through with God on Sunday? Or is it just shot through with God when we go to Bible study? Or are we God-saturated when we go to school, when we go to work, when we go to university, when we go to the, the, the clubs that we are a part of? Is, is, is God evident? Is he filling every part of our lives? Do we acknowledge God in our home? Do we acknowledge God in our marriages? Do we acknowledge God in our places of work? Boaz was a man of noble character, and it was reflected in his life and the way in which he saw God influencing every part of his life. I also see in this text the God who answers prayer. And for God to answer prayer, he's also got to be able to hear our prayer, right? Do you remember Naomi's prayer um, as, as she was trying to urge her daughter-in-laws to leave? As she is urging them to leave, she is telling them, as she says to them, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant that you find rest, each one of you in the house of her husband. And here we are now, two, three, four weeks later, and the kindness of God is being heaped upon Ruth. She comes to the field of Boaz. The permission from the foreman to stay and glean in the field that she comes to. The protection that Boaz gives her as he meets her. The provision that Boaz gives to her. The kindness that Boaz shows to her. The extraordinary kindness that Boaz shows to her by telling his gleaners to even take stuff out of what they've gleaned and leave it behind for Ruth. The flame that's being kindled in Boaz's heart towards Ruth. And what about the rest that Ruth was experiencing? Spiritually, she had found comfort under the wings of God. Emotionally, she had come to a secure field, secure from hassle and the risk of abuse. Physically, she had water, she had food, she had wine. She sat down and ate. God had answered Ruth or Naomi's prayer on behalf of Ruth. Beloved, God hears and answers. Your prayer. Do you see how God is answering prayer in the very circumstances of your life even today? And then we find, and this is maybe me, um, but I, I see this here. God has a sense of humor. I really believe God has a sense of humor. I'll tell you why in a moment. But Paul reminds us that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Sometimes he does it, I think, with a twinkle in his eye. Don't you think he must have just smiled and chuckled a little bit after the disciples had come back from a day of fishing and they had nothing in their boats and Jesus says, go back out and cast your net on the other side. And they fill the boat up full and it starts to sink and they have another boat. I think God must have been up there just smiling away. And what about Balaam? Although it was a serious situation and Balaam is going to curse Israel and he won't listen to anybody and all of a sudden God throws him off his donkey, and his donkey turns around and begins talking to him. Don't you think God chuckled a little bit about that, even though it was serious? I'll get this guy. I'll make this donkey talk to him. And don't we love laughter? You know, don't we love a good belly laugh? We're talking last night out for dinner. You know, when's the last time you have laughed so hard that you've cried? Doesn't laughter make you feel good inside? 
And loved ones, aren't we made in the image of God? Don't we reflect our Heavenly Father? And so I think God laughs. And I think God finds things humorous. For example, in verse 17, here we have the end of the day. Ruth has been out gleaning all day long from early in the morning. And she has ended now by beating out the barley stalks that she has to get the kernels of barley or whatever you call them. And when she's done, she measures out an ephah of barley. Do you know how much that is even by the most conservative counts? That is 30 pounds of barley. Can you see her slinging 30 pounds of barley on her back going home when, when that would have been unheard of as a day of a gleaning? I think God must have been up there just smiling away with a great sense of humor. Here is my extraordinary, over-the-top provision. Here is this young lady who's been gleaning all day, and now I have given back to her good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Not just enough for today, but enough for weeks and possibly even months to come. And I was thinking that, I thought God must have been rejoicing over her. He must have laughed with delight as, as Ruth's heart must have just stirred with just great joy, even in her fatigue, that she had so much to bring home to Naomi. I think God has a sense of humor. What about the hand of God in our comings and our goings? We talked about finding Waldo. It's different or difficult because Waldo is not the only person or object in the image. It'd be easy to find Waldo if it was just Waldo's picture up on the wall. But when you've got to find Waldo sort of in the picture, it gives new meaning to finding Waldo. The scenes are full of all kinds of activity in which Waldo is somewhere present. And in a much greater and profounder way, God is not separated from his world and from our lives. He is not sort of removed from our circumstances and from our situations and sort of stands over there and we here slug it out. No, loved ones, God is intertwined with our lives and in our world. And he works in our comings and our going. Yes, there are these odd times where God will say, stand back and watch me work. But those are rare times in Scripture. The vast majority of times, God works his plan out and his will out through your and my comings and goings. He accomplishes his will through us. So we have Ruth who goes out to a field. We have Ruth who works hard to get the bar barley that she gleans. We have Boaz who planted a field and cultivated it. We have Boaz who established a working relationship with those in his field. We have Ruth who went to that field that day. We have Boaz who went to check on his workers. They made decisions. They acted with integrity. They didn't get up in the morning and say, well, I'm just going to let everything go and sit back and wait for God to work in my life. Loved ones, it is not let go and let God. And even in our praying, sometimes God uses you and I to answer our own prayers. Boaz prayed that God might repay and reward Ruth for, for having taken refuge in God. But did Boaz realize that by his provision of protection, by his provision of, of food, by his kindness, these were means through which God repaid Ruth? That Boaz became the very answer to his prayer for Ruth. Loved ones, we worship a sovereign and providential God. 
We worship a God who guides and directs all the affairs of this world. But the mystery is that God accomplishes his purposes through our comings and goings, through our obedience, and yes, sometimes even through our disobedience. He accomplishes his purposes through our praying. And so we find in this chapter that God is a God that is involved intimately in our comings and our goings. The lot is cast in the lap. That's an action of men. You throw the lot. But it's every decision is from the Lord. The king's heart is like a stream of water. He thinks, he plans, he he decides, he makes decisions. But the Lord turns it wherever he will. And then finally and lastly, the God under whose wings we take refuge. Boaz prays for Ruth. He says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. God is no longer hiding now, is he? What do we make of such an image? It's certainly not the way that we would normally speak today. It's not a metaphor that that we find making its way into our everyday conversation. But it is a familiar enough metaphor. It's that of a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her feathers. And as Jesus looked down on Jerusalem, he lamented, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you as children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. We have another somewhat similar image of this metaphor of the care of an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, pushing them out of the nest. And as they tumble down to the earth, learning how to fly, the eagle swoops down and catches them under their wings, as it says in Deuteronomy 3, burying them up under its feathers. Ruth had made a significant decision. She had decided that she would leave family, friends, homeland, religion, everything that provided her with security, and she would submit herself to the protection and care of God. She believed that God would take care of her. And later, her grandson would say, he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. He had learned from his grandmother what this meant now and how God could be trusted. For he wrote, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. For the wicked do me violence, my deadly enemy who surrounds me. In another place he wrote, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass. Because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. We used to sing a hymn. Under his wings I am safely abiding. Through the, though the night dark deepens and tempests are wild, still I can trust him. I know he will keep me. He has redeemed me and I am his child. Under his wings, under his wings, who from his love can sever? Under his wings my soul shall abide, safely abide forever. Like Isaiah the prophet said to the people of Israel, Behold your God. Loved ones, behold your God as he is revealed to us in Ruth chapter 2. And this is just a snapshot of the God whose world this is and who is engaged in our lives. He is a God worth loving. He is a God worth worshiping. He is a God worth trusting. He is a God in whom we should take refuge. Sometimes it is not until we're at the bottom that we realize what God is doing and what he is like. Tulian Chavidian 
in a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, describes his Naomi-like experience. He has stripped me down, wrecked me afresh. And when he does that to a person, when you actually feel like you have nothing, Jesus becomes more to you than you could ever hope or imagine. Have you been wrecked? Have you been stripped down? Find rest under the shadow of God's wings. God is offering you refuge. He is offering you protection. He is offering you safety. He is offering you a refuge from the storms of life. As one wrote, there is a rock to be found. There is an inner rest to be experienced that's deeper than conceptual understanding, human love, personal success, and the accumulation of possessions. There is a rock that will give you rest even when all those things have been taken away. That rock is Christ. And, when, and you were hardwired to find what you are seeking in Him. In His grace, He won't play hide and seek with you. In your weakness and weariness, cry out to Him. He will find you. He will be your rock. You can find safety under His wings. If you need security, if you need protection, if you need safety, Come to God this morning and find rest.